I got a lot more energy and a lot more drive to put into this movement before I, you know, pass it on to much younger people. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hey, hey, my, my, liberty will never die, at least not as long as I'm hosting this darn show. You have indeed arrived at the latest edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode number 189 to be exact. Today's show notes can be found over at lionsofliberty.com slash 189. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Today's guest is a veteran political consultant, lawyer, and libertarian author operating out of my very birthplace, Buffalo, New York. Presently, he is an adjunct scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute. His writing can be found at Mises.org and LewRockwell.com. He runs the website LibertyMovement.org, and he is the author of several books, including Progressivism, A Primer on the Idea Destroying America, and Direct Citizen Action, How We Can Win the Second American Revolution Without Firing a Shot. I'm pleased to welcome in Jim Ostrowski. Jim, are you ready to roar? I absolutely am. I used to coach uh, a basketball team called the Lions, so I'm ready to roll. Oh, well, perfect. Perfect. Now, Jim, I've got a lot of subjects I'd like to touch on with you uh, today in the political realm, including your work on progressivism, as I mentioned, and your ideas about direct political action, how we can really influence our government, maybe not through the traditional methods. But first, I want my listeners to get to know you a little bit better and get to know where you're coming from. So how did you first become interested in the ideas of liberty? Well, it's... uh Hopefully an interesting story. I actually have a piece in Walter Block's uh, book about how people got into the uh, libertarian movement. But long story short, I grew up in a political family. My father was a judge from the time I was three years old. And in, up in New York, we elect uh, local judges. So I had a lot of experience with political campaigns just growing up. And uh, eventually, I Got interested in uh, libertarian ideas by being exposed to people like Milton Friedman in college. I saw Ayn Rand a couple of times and checked out her stuff, and that ultimately led me to uh, Murray Rothbard and pretty much have been a pretty solid uh, Rothbardian since I was like about 20 years old. I'm 58, by the way. So I've been in the movement for the majority of its existence because it really only dates back to, you know, 1968 or around that time. What, what would you peg as the kind of the beginning, I guess, of the modern liberty movement? I mean, to many people, to some younger kids, the modern movement is really just Ron Paul in 2008. Right. But really political wise, would you say maybe the start of the Libertarian Party or Murray Rothbard and Ayn Rand's prominence in the 60s? I think a lot of people would argue that it was the split off in, I think, 1968 of the Society for Individual Liberty from the other group. I think it was called Young Americans for Freedom, I think, not to be confused with a lot of similar names going on now. And I think it was in 1968, they had a convention and the, the libertarians in the group uh, left the convention in protest of the war, uh, opposition to the Vietnam War, and also to conscription. And I think that that was probably the first big sort of public event and I think that's probably a good demarcation. There's no 
scientific way to, to measure it. But frankly, before the 60s, the movement, and I, I discuss a little bit about this in the book, uh, the movement had kind of lain fallow for about 40 years because back in the 1910s, 1920s, there still were some libertarians, but they kind of got old and died off. And so for about 40, 50 years, there really wasn't a libertarian movement. Say, for example, my father went to college. There wasn't a libertarian movement. He didn't really know what it was all about because it frankly didn't exist when he was uh, in college and a a young man. So the history of this movement is fascinating. In the book, I really trace it all back to about 1650, but just talking about, you know, in in, in the last hundred years or so, that it's pretty much a, it's a fairly young movement. I know a lot of people got in through Ron Paul, but there was, believe it or not, a pretty serious movement before that. Ron grew the movement uh, tremendously. So, Jim, you've been around, obviously, a long time and seen this movement blossom in so many ways. At the same time, I mean, while the movement itself has grown, I I would say the support for it has grown. It seems, at least many people, especially the people that might have just come in in the last eight years or so with the Ron Paul campaigns, they might be very disappointed about what they've seen, at least on the national level. A lot of people obviously had their hopes on Rand Paul in many ways. Many of them just saw him as the natural successor to Ron Paul's campaigns and figured, hey, if nothing more, we've got that Ron Paul base built on. So it should only increase from here. And yet, I mean, just looking at the numbers in Iowa, I mean, Rand got maybe a quarter of the votes that Ron gotten. This might speak to kind of your ideas about how effective we can be in the political realm. But just for starters, what do you attribute, I guess, the lack of success, at least in the the way we judge political stuff here with poll numbers and votes in Iowa is really all we have to go on of Rand Paul's campaign. What do you attribute that to? What did he not have in that campaign that Ron Paul had? I think that Rand Paul, long story short, tried to water down the message and to broaden his base but he didn't attract new members from the conservative wing, and he pretty much lost most of the Ron Paul movement. The excitement was gone. There weren't people hitting the streets, doing sine waves, and all the other exciting things that happened. And uh, really, a lot of people, including me, just said, well, I'm not going to participate in this, uh, in this campaign because it's not a principled libertarian campaign. He actually said, he described the word libertarian as an albatross around his neck, and that was that was the end. I never was involved, but that was the end of any possibility that I would be involved. But I really think, and I talk about this in the book, that, uh, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book and have the website, libertymovement.org, I was very concerned in around April of uh, 2012 it looked like Ron was not going to be the nominee. And I was very concerned that all the people brought into the movement, we wouldn't really have anything for them to do after the campaign ended. And certainly the Rand Paul campaign did not fit that bill either. So it was my hope that, and I'm way behind schedule, and I'm, I'm just sort of one guy, one lawyer in Buffalo. But what I wanted to do with the book, the website, and so on, was to really try to rebrand the movement, remarket the movement. I for example, I don't even like I don't even like the word libertarian. That's all explained in the book. But move people in the direction of uh, what I call direct citizen action, which I've written three books about now. And by that I mean everything other than politics and I define politics as either lobbying the government or engaging in the ele- uh, 
the political process. In my view, I'm not totally against political action. I did. I was very active in both Ron's campaigns. I was an election lawyer up in New York, uh, for example. I did a lot more than that. But I think we need to realize that politics is a rigged game and that with our current level of support in the population, which may be 10%, if you want to look at it optimistically, uh, we're not going to prevail in the political realm and that we should uh, do other things that I think would be more effective. And I call that direct action. Now, I think many people involved in the Ron Paul campaigns can attest that the system is very rigged in many ways. I think a lot of people saw that at various conventions and and caucuses and that sort of thing. They saw that up front. But do you think that there's any sort of tipping point where, say, if enough people really came together on these ideas in a strong way and got deeply involved in the political process, is there a point that just corruption can just become overcome? Because, I mean, if you have an overwhelming majority, I mean, there's only so much kind of finagling you can do on the corruption side of things to sort of hold people down. Well, yes, if you have enough people, but we don't have enough people and our opponents, which I would call progressives, they control the schools. They control the schools from like K through 12 and and then beyond, obviously, they control the universities. So where are all these people going to come from? And if you look at, and I, I like to cut to the chase, I'm a trial lawyer, so one of the things that we like to do is we only have so much time in front of the jury to make a point. If people say, well, politics is the answer, we're going to win it in politics. I said, well, when's the last time an election resulted in uh, increased liberty in America? And I usually then have to fill in the blank. But as far as I know, it was like 1800 when Jefferson won. He defeated the Federalists who had controlled the government for about 12 years. And Jefferson in his first term actually did shrink the government. His second term uh, wasn't as good. So if somebody could point me an example of where this has worked, there had been some very isolated victories, you know, the quasi-legalization of marijuana some states and things like that, but conscription was ended uh, actually by a libertarian named Martin Anderson. I talk about that in the book. But those are all the exceptions that argue against the rule of trying to accurately quote Francis Bacon. So I think it's I'm not against politics, but we need to be strategic about it. You need to pick a battle and concentrate forces at that point to maybe win uh, an election here or there, win a single issue of a ballot proposal. But I think we have to realize that politics is a rigged game and that we need to attack the enemy at its weakest link, which, and I've said many times, and it's in my book, uh, that would be, in case people wonder exactly what I'm talking about, the decision to send your child to a government school when they're about five. Now, you know, that's a pretty weak aspect of the state because that's a decision that we can influence, not in every case, but marginally, and then hope to get a steamroll effect going. In fact, I think, and Ron Paul's involved in this, and Tom Woods involved in this, and I'm mostly involved in it as a talker and a writer, I've written about it extensively, the homeschooling movement is really one of the few tangible successes that we have. The number of homeschools is going up, and that does deprive the state of those young minds to be turned into, you know, progressive minds full of mush. So that would be the, the biggest example. Uh, I also believe that uh, I view jury 
participation as a form of direct action because it literally, it's not the jury trying to convince the judge to do something. The jury is the actual decision maker in that particular case. And I think that's another aspect where we can really attack the state and, and, the, and my books talk about various other methods as well. Sure. And, and I mean, even in order to get to that point, we need to focus on really, I guess, getting enough people to see the reasons for those things, to see the reasons to not send their kids to a government school, see the reasons to think about being on a jury and consider the ideas of nullification. It just seems like quite the uphill battle because, I mean, as far as I know, you can't really even utter the word nullification in a courtroom without getting kind of shuffled out the door if you're a juror. And I'm, I'm sure it's not looked upon highly if prosecutors or not prosecutors, probably more defense attorneys that would bring that term up in court. So, I mean, where do you really start with this stuff? I mean, how do we start by changing the way people think about these things in the first place, I guess? Those are good questions. With respect to jury nullification, I'm actually working on some flyers uh, now. Some of the stuff gets very basic, like putting out a basic flyer and trying to bring people's attention to the fact that uh, they have obligations and, and rights as jurors. I did write a long article about it, exposed the whole process by which government courts overrule this constitutional right. Education really is a form of direct action, uh, but what I'm really hoping is that uh, through the website, libertymovement.org, uh, which has a, a bunch of pretty good flyers on it right now, to allow people to kind of become their own organization because, you know, as libertarians don't want to be organized. We don't have a boss. We don't want a boss. So, I, you know, I said in the book, it's fine. Just become your own one-person self for, for liberty or your family or your, organize your street or, or your neighbors. So the jury nullification is something that needs to be worked on with person-to-person education, flyers, and so on, even Judge Sotomayor the other day apparently said something about you know, we might we might need to allow jury nullification. So on schools, um, I wrote a book called Government Schools Are Bad for Your Kids. And it's not really until you get to like chapter eight or nine, it's not really an ideological book because chapter one is about crime in the schools. There's been a tremendous amount of denial of what is actually going on in school. These are not your fathers or grandfathers public schools that a lot of people think it's pretty bad out there. Uh, chapter two is about sex. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, not that there's anything wrong with sex, but there's a lot of promiscuity in the schools leading to a lot of bad consequences such as STDs, such as abortions. And these are, you know, teenage girls. Uh, so uh, chapter three is about drugs. I mean, there's two high schools in the Buffalo area that compete for the nickname Heroin High. So I don't want to summarize the whole book, but my point is I put this book out there and I hope this book will sell a lot more. It hasn't sold near as much as the my book on progressivism, but I hope to get there. Just to give this, it's a very inexpensive book. It's short. You can read it in about three or four hours. I'm hoping to get this book to parents of children who are three, four, five, they're thinking about where to go to school or whether to homeschool. And this is, you know, really what I call direct action, uh, talking to parents and trying, if you don't have children yourself, people say, well, I don't have children. Well, that's fine. Other people do. You have children in your family. There's cousins, there's brothers, sisters, and so on. You, you have neighbors. Buy a book, you know, it's like 10 bucks or something. You give a book to people who are 
in that age of making that decision. So there's no, you know, we can't be like progressives. They're utopians. It's like, well, government's going to solve all the problems. Jim Ostrowski, nor the libertarian movement, nor anyone in the movement is going to solve all the problems. A lot of this, like Ludwig von Mises said in one of his articles, there's work to be done ceaselessly and assiduously. And I've been at it for 40 years, getting a little frustrated. I really want to spend the next uh, year, two or three, uh, laying it all on the line and giving it everything I have and trying to uh, get some of these ideas up and running. And I got a lot more energy and a lot more drive to put into this movement before I you know, pass it on to much younger people. Well, Jim, it sounds to me like you've got a lot left in the tank here. So hopefully it'll be a little bit before you actually officially hand the reins over or what have you. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your work on progressivism in just a second. But I need to take a minute now out to tell my listeners a little bit more about our sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my health care? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. (laughs) I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500, I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype. So you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary, and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health, or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative, Jeff Cantor, at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Well, Jim, I know one of the things that you kind of peg as, I guess, the source of a lot of these problems is what you mentioned there, the idea of progressivism and how it's really infiltrated all areas of politics, not just what we perceive as the left. So I want to look back at that a little bit. So first of all, how would you describe or define the term progressivism? What exactly is it? And how did this sort of concept or I guess maybe series of concepts start to form in the United States? Well, it's a long, complicated Story, but what I tried to do in the book is just from watching progressives, the media, uh, politicians, policy wonks, just from watching them over the course of years, I was puzzled by their why they think the way they do and why they propose the proposals that they propose, and I just somehow developed this idea of what they were really doing. And that's sort of the genesis of the book. So what I'm trying to capture in the book is not like, oh, what did Woodrow Wilson do in 1914 or whatever? There's some of that. But what I'm really trying to capture is the basic default mindset of the typical American right now as to 
what the government should do. And what I have observed over decades is the typical American right now thinks that for whatever the problem of the day is, there's a, some guy shot somebody up uh, yesterday, that's on the news. Whatever the particular problem du jour is, that some sort of government action will be formulated to solve that problem. And that's the progressive uh, mindset. It does have its roots in the capital T progressive era, but that's not as important as what I'm trying to do in the book is capture the present mindset. And I think I kind of did that in the book. So basically progressivism is this sort of knee-jerk presumption that the government will solve any particular problem that rolls along. But it's like in Austrian economics, you know, you start out with one axiom and then you build on that and you reveal what all that implies. And in the book I have, let's see, page 26, I have like an eight part set of elements of that definition where I break it apart and, and pick it apart so we can understand what it is. And for example, number six is the progressive has no theory of cost or denies or minimizes the cost of its proposed solutions. Now, it's been pointed out, and I claim no originality on any particular element of the definition, but I think I did a decent job putting it together. It's often been pointed out that what a lot of people call liberals, I prefer to call them progressives, that, oh, you know, everything's, money will solve all the problems. I, I think it's a little deeper than that. They literally have no theory of cost. So when you say, with respect to Social Security, which is the example I use in the book, well, how much are you willing to pay for this thing? Well, they've raised taxes 20 times on Social Security. So I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't matter what the costs are, that they will always support the Social Security program, regardless of the cost. That's actually a pretty startling and remarkable discovery or truth about progressivism. And quite frankly, that's crazy. I don't mean mental ill. I just, I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. That, that's irrational. And one of the things about progressivism is that studying the early history of it, they saw themselves, they described, they thought of themselves as a very sort of rational scientific approach with this natural law stuff doesn't make any sense with superstition, the free market, the invisible hand, all that stuff sort of, you know, irrational and metaphysical. And we're going to be empirical and rational and scientific. But actually, uh, there's nothing scientific about progressive. There's nothing rational about it. It's completely irrational and non-rational. And ultimately, I think, my conclusion in the book is that progressivism is a form of therapy. That's basically what I conclude in the book. That's funny, Jim, because just listening to how you describe progressivism, which so many people associate with the left, the way you describe it, I can just as easily peg that onto the right wing because I see the Republicans up there on stage and all I'm seeing is them calling for all these government you know, government solutions to everything. I'm hearing them just calling for more money for the military. Oh, there's ISIS. Well, we just need more money for the military. And that's really just the opposite side of the same concept that we see from progressives or what most people would associate with progressives as. But they're really just two ends of sort of the same spectrum here. They're all really progressives, at least in the way you describe them. Yeah, I talk a lot about uh, war in the book and how, you know, contrary to popular view, progressivism is very pro-war by its very nature, 
I talk about the Civil War, for example, uh, as uh, a progressive war. There's a big dispute in academia about whether Lincoln was a progressive. Well, I, I, he was described as a progressive by Teddy Roosevelt, who I think knew a thing or two about progressives. But the progressive is always looking to, since the progressive believes that government force is good for society, the progressive is always going to favor a larger governmental unit over a smaller one. And the notion of secession has to be resisted because if the smaller portion secedes, then the central government will no longer be able to impose its progressive policies on that particular uh, unit. So the progressive is always a centralizer, always moving towards larger states and within the state, always looking to push power towards the central government and in the central government itself, always looking to push power towards the executive branch, because that's actually the executive function as it is encapsulated in one person is actually the most powerful form of government because Congress has to sit there and deliberate, try to figure out what 535 people want. And it's no accident that the great progressive heroes are, all, are almost all presidents, uh, Wilson and FDR, and uh, uh, LBJ and his domestic programs, and, and now Obama. Yeah, you don't hear progressives tout, you know, their favorite obscure congressman very often. It's always the most powerful person in a position of government. Yeah, so uh, true. And, and so basically, uh, you know, the neocons and really anybody who favors an aggressive foreign policy and war, it's really just another form of progressivism. It's just applied overseas instead of domestically. It really sounds like progressivism, which, as far as I can tell, has no overriding principle other than expand government, do these things, these seemingly altruistic things through government that, that we feel are proper, but that's really not a principle, that those are just political goals. They're unprincipled political goals. They're really the opposite of what the liberty movement, I don't know if it's what the liberty movement is, but it's certainly what the liberty movement should be. It should be the complete counter to that. And I see so many libertarians now, now that Rand Paul is out of the race, saying, Okay, well, maybe we got to support Ted Cruz because if nothing else, well, hey, we don't want Hillary in office, you know, appointing a Supreme Court justice. And I'm just thinking I'm looking at Ted Cruz or even Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I'm looking at these people and I'm seeing basically essentially the same person. Maybe there's a 0.02 percent difference here and there. So I guess you would recommend not really choosing that path for people that really do believe in individual liberty. Am I safe to assume that? Yeah, I'm not supporting any candidates. At this point, I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably say that the date of the election, well, this person's probably worse than that person, but I try not to get into that. I really think that at this point that libertarians need to plan for the future and figure out how to win this fight outside of the political realm. And uh, that's basically everything that I'm I've been doing with the book and the website, libertymovement.org, and everything I intend to keep doing for the foreseeable future. Well, Jim, I'm glad you're out there doing it because we need more people kind of helping people focus on the ideas on how to push things forward towards a more liberty direction. And really, national politics is something I focus on a lot, something we focus on a lot here at Lions of Liberty, because that's what other people are paying attention to. So that's what we filter a lot of our conversations through. But at the end of the day, I mean, like you said, the last time we saw a president that actually made the government smaller, we have to look back to Thomas Jefferson. So if we really think that <laughs> simply focusing on national politics is the way to change things, I, mean, I think uh, we have enough evidence from history to say maybe perhaps another method might be a 
available to us. So, and, and certainly your ideas of direct citizen action are one way to go about that. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Before I let you go, why don't you just give everyone a quick summary of how they can find all your work and uh, how they can get your books and uh, how they can find your writings. Yeah, you mentioned LouRockwell.com. I still write for uh, for Lou, although I more write more books these days than articles. All my books are on Amazon, and the latest uh, on Progressive is yeah, check out the reviews. They're really good, uh, selling uh, really well. It's my best-selling book by far. And then the website is LibertyMovement.org, where you can sign up. We just started to put a database together. There's already some flyers online. Uh, the, the website needs uh, a, a lot of work, but it's a, it's a good start so far. Jim Ostrowski, keep up the great work and keep on roaring. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me. All right, guys, and I hope you enjoyed my discussion there with Jim Ostrowski, a guy that's been involved in the liberty movement for so long. And hey, he's got a website, libertymovement.org. So hopefully that's a landing point for a lot of people when they're searching for information on the liberty movement and searching for ways that they can actually affect things. Now, I have mixed views on the political thing. I mean, I do think everybody that's into the ideas of liberty, that believes in individual rights, should be politically active in some way. Now, political activism doesn't just mean working for a candidate or asking that a certain candidate be elected or even necessarily pushing specific policies through. Those are all methods of political action. But to me, really, even a dialogue, even this podcast is engaging in political action. When we're having a discussion about the effects of government, when we're having a discussion about what sort of actions are right and wrong? Well, we're talking about politics. We're talking about how man should govern themselves, how man should govern each other, whatever way you want to look at it. It's all in the realm of politics to me. But when Jim discusses sort of focusing on national politics, especially as sort of the be all end all. And, and look, we're partially guilty. As I mentioned, we spend a lot of time watching these debates, watching the GOP debates, watching the Democrat debates. But at the end of the day, Let's be honest. I don't lose too much sleep over who the president's going to be. It's not going to make that big of a difference. The people in the race, the people that are going to win, we can deny it all we want. We can pretend there's a secret Rand Paul strategy still standing with Rand. That's great and all. But guess what? Rand Paul is not going to be a hero and come sweep into the Republican convention and become the president. That's not going to happen. Ron Paul's not going to do it either. There's no deus ex machina of liberty that's about to sweep down and just guide the whole country there. That's just not how it works. It's not how anything's going to work. The way to really change things now for me, now Jim has, has identified direct citizen action. And I think of a lot of the things he brings up are very important. Taking kids out of public school. Now, that might not be the choice for everybody, but at least being involved in your child's education, seeing the kind of indoctrination they're getting if they're in a public school, they might even get a lot of that indoctrination from private schools. I mean, I think the fact that a lot of parents maybe feel they don't need to be involved, but at the same time, a lot of parents, those parents hold the bad beliefs. So if a parent who's a progressive goes and pulls his kid out of a school and then teaches him to be a progressive, well, I don't know how much has really changed. But if that parent has changed their philosophy, you know, because this is where I always get back to, we have to really focus on a philosophy that guides people to the ideas of liberty. If we're not focusing on the core philosophy of things, the reasons why, we have to always ask why, but in the course of political dialogue, we need to be able to answer why. And it can't just be some utilitarian stuff of, well, we'll see 0.2% more growth if we institute this policy. No, we have to make the moral case for liberty, and we have to make it broadly. We have to make it strongly. And only then, only when people have those ideas of individual rights imbued in them, only then will we see these systems change. Only then will we see national politicians that more fervently advocate for individual rights. 
Now, we had Rand Paul. He was doing it. He was doing it in his own way. Didn't really inspire people. It didn't inspire me, I got to be honest. Ron Paul did it. Ron Paul did a great job of it. He inspired people. It can't be denied. I have a lot of quibble points with Ron Paul. I don't agree with everything he's ever said. But he certainly did inspire people. But that's a rarity. And what did he inspire people to do? He inspired people to think about things differently. He didn't inspire the world to vote him as president and usher us into liberty. No. He inspired people to think differently. He inspired people to start their own projects. He inspired the, the creation of the Lions of Liberty, this very podcast that you're listening to right now. But it all comes from changing people's core beliefs. That's what we need to focus on first and foremost. Now, just after I go and say that we shouldn't focus on national politics, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to flip it all around and promote our next show, the next episode of the Lions of Liberty core show. Next week, we've got a combo show. We're looking at another set of Democrat and GOP debates. So do I look like a total hypocrite now after telling everybody that national politics isn't important? Well, the fact is, this is where the conversation is. So while I think who might be the president isn't that important, I think the ideas that are put out there in these debates need to be combated, they need to be discussed, and the realities of the effects of many of the policies being brought up need to be discussed as well. And discuss them we will on our next Lions of Liberty Corps episode this coming Monday on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And before that, don't forget to check out every single Friday, we've got John Odermatt's Felony Friday, a weekly look at the criminal justice system, the broken criminal justice system, and how we can reform it. You can, of course, find all our great podcasts by subscribing to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio. However you listen to podcasts, you can, of course, join the conversation by heading over to our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Also find us on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. And if you want to converse with us a little bit more, talk about our past episodes, talk with some of our contributors, you can join the conversation by heading over to the Lions of Liberty Forum. That's our private group on Facebook. We'll link to that in the show notes for today's show, lionsofliberty.com slash 189. You can also just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your Facebook search bar and you should find it pretty quickly. And as long as you don't look like some kind of spam bot, I will let you write in and you can join the conversation with us. Until next time, guys, live long and live free.